It's a great story of, of God kind of moving their lives. And like I said, uh, once or twice a month, I'm going to be showing these stories, just uh, random stories of what God's doing uh, in our church, what it looks like uh, when a movement's being unleashed, which is our, our vision. Well, uh, we're ready to go into our time of teaching. Y'all ready to go? Yeah. All right. Uh, if you're brand new here, uh, inside of the, your program is a white message note sheet that we use every week, and so I encourage you to uh, take that out and uh, uh, help you follow along. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get started. Father, we're, uh, we're just excited to be here. We're hungry to hear from you. We, we want to connect with you today in a powerful way. We want to understand what the resurrection of your son means in terms of our lives every, every day, but not just every day, but for the whole course of human history, for the course of the universe. And so, God, we pray that today you'd come open our eyes, let us see some new things that we've never seen before, and come out changed as a result. We pray this in your name. Amen. Our story starts today on a, on a Sunday morning, and uh, it's, it's been the, the least, worst, kind of the worst weekend of her life. It's, uh, it's all started that previous Friday. She still remembers exactly where she was standing um, when she heard the news that he had been arrested, that he was taken in for interrogation, and then, and then it went from bad to worse as so she got news that, that he'd been sentence, and he was going to be executed. She gathered her things that day. She traveled to the site of execution outside the city. There she teamed up with a few of her friends, and they went. And she'll never forget the first time she saw him. It it was almost unrecognizable. He was so beaten. His body was so torn. He'd been so abused. And, And the events of those days, of that day, will be forever emblazoned on her brain. The, uh, the sound of the spikes as the hammer would strike the head, driving him into the wood through his flesh, and the screams that would pierce the morning air with each blow. And she remembers him being lifted up, dropped with a thud into the ground, his body screaming out in pain naked there for all to see. She was there for hours. Finally, the death came, and it was just so merciful. She was just so glad it was over. She was there. She remembers the soldiers walking up, taking the spear, putting it in his side, in his rib cage, puncturing the lungs and his heart, the blood and water flowing out, gushing out in the stream in a moment of violence, proving he was dead. Circulation had stopped. And then he was down. And it was almost like she was in a state of shock as she heard the hammers wrenching the spikes from his wrist and from the wood, wrenching them from the, his feet. She was so surprised to see those two Jewish leaders show up. I mean, they're on the Jewish high, high court. I mean, what were they doing here? And then she was even more surprised when they asked for the body. And so she followed behind as they and their servants took it to the local tomb. And she watched as they tenderly bathed that naked body and washed it clean, wrapped it in spices, put the linen grave cloths on, working hurriedly because it's almost dark. It had to be done by sundown, and finally they were done. They put the body in on that stone ledge, a stone bench inside, the servants pushing the huge stone in front. And she'll never forget that long walk home. The pain that she felt 
It was almost unbearable. It was the end of all her hopes, the end of her dreams, of all of their dreams. They'd all believed in him. And they'd obviously been wrong. Her mind went back to the first time she had met him and how he'd healed her. She remembered traveling with him on the journey. She remembers the time they laughed together, ate together, watching him teach to the thousands, healing people, confronting the religious authorities, knowing that his life was on the line, and now it had all come to this. And she couldn't believe that the one who was once so full of life was now dead forever. Today we're continuing a series that we've been in since last June. For those of you who are brand new, we want to welcome you. But I want to also bring you up to speed. It's a series called Reveal. It's a study of the life and the teaching of Jesus as seen through the eyes of one of his closest followers, perhaps his best friend, a man by the name of John, who later, later wrote an account of the life and teaching of Jesus called the Gospel of John. We're actually in the fourth mini-series in this overall series, fourth and final mini-series. It's there in the front of your, your white sheet. It's called The Glory and the Shame. It, it starts at chapter 18 with the arrest of Jesus, his interrogation, follows through his sentencing, his execution, his burial, his resurrection, and then about a month and a half of post-resurrection appearances. And today we come to chapter 20. Now, if you were here last week, you remember the scene. Last week we watched as Jesus was crucified. And we reviewed the horrific thing that's called Roman crucifixion. We talked about the scourging with, with the whip that would leave the prisoners often their intestines exposed and their bones revealed. Uh, we, we talked about the spikes going through his wrists and through his, his feet. We, we watched him put up there naked for all to see, suffering throughout the day. We watched as the soldiers pierced his side violently with a spear, making sure he was dead. The blood and water came out. We saw him carried to the tomb. We watched him being prepared for burial, wrapped in the special cloths, rushing before sundown, put him in the tomb, stones over. That's how the chapter ended. One of the things we saw last week is while he was being crucified, most of his men weren't there. They were hiding for their lives for fear of the authority. But there was one of his men there. It was John, the author of our story. And there was also four women there. One of the women who was there was a, a lady named Mary Magdalene. And she's got a lot of press in recent years from high-class, reputable theological journals like the Da Vinci Cult. Uh, Mary was a, a passionate Christ follower. The things that have been told by, by that particular book, movie, or whatever, obviously based on myths and uh, legend that uh, things that happened hundreds of years, that were developed hundreds of years after the time of Jesus, not like the New Testament Gospels that were written very soon after. And so there's not much we can learn about Mary there, but fortunately when we turn to the New Testament, there's three or four things that we know about Mary that we know for sure. Number one, we, we know that Mary was from a small, uh, kind of about a prosperous seaside village town. It was on the Sea of Galilee. It was about five or six miles from Capernaum, which was Jesus' home base of operations in his ministry. So this, this city was, that she was from was about five or six miles. It was on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. The name of the city was Magdala, which is why she is called the Magdalene. Uh, we also know that uh, when Jesus first met her, she was demonized. 
Now, I don't know how much you know about demonized or being demon-possessed, but the New Testament, of course, has counts. Uh, we have accounts of that in third-world countries today, sometimes even in our own country. Terrifying experience. We're told she had a bad case. She was demon-possessed by seven demons. And so when Jesus met her, he released her from that torment. If you think through the stories in the Gospels of people that are demonized, I mean, it's just it's horrendous. It's, it's a terror. And so God, uh, Jesus freed her from that. And as a result, she became what we call here at Rocky Peak a passionate Christ follower. And, and not only did she believe in Jesus and support him, she actually began to travel with him along with several other women who were with him uh, on his team who were there to support them in their ministry, actually even financially supporting. We know that from Luke chapter 8. And then as we learned last week, she was one of the four that was there at the very end, the day that he died, watched him die, watched him bury, and that whole thing. And so today as we come to John chapter 20, we come to the story of that first Sunday after the crucifixion. And John starts his story by telling it through the eyes of Mary Magdalene. And so if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to John chapter 20. Now if you don't have your Bible... Inside of your program, I put the verses that we're going to be looking at today so you can follow along. But if you have your Bible, uh, why don't you join me in John 20, and we'll walk through. So early on the first day of the week, so which day is that? Wow, one person's awake. Uh, That's good. Uh, First day of the week? Sunday, yeah, so it's, it's early. In fact, it's so early, it's, it's dark. It's uh, when the elders meet. Anyway, uh, so Mary Magdalene, they went to the tomb, and, and of course, she'd been there on Friday. She'd watched where the, the burial was and so on. And when she gets there, in fact, the other gospels tell her there's also some other women with her at this point, but, but, but John just wants to tell it through her eyes. And so they saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. This is not good news something's wrong. And so, uh, so she comes running to Simon Peter. Of course, he's the uh, lead uh, disciple, follower of Jesus, leader of the 12. And uh, he and the others are back in town in Jerusalem, in the city. And so uh, she comes running. Uh, notice she is just freaking out. I mean, she, it's, it's early in the morning, and she's, uh, I'm sure she doesn't have her jogging shoes on. She wasn't prepared for this. But she is running to them. Something is, is seriously wrong. And uh, she comes to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one that Jesus loved. That's John. He's the author of our story. And, and, they, and she says, hey, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb. Someone's removed the body. And we don't know where they put him. So it's a, it's a crisis. This is like adding insult to injury. I, I believe Mary has been crying all weekend long. Uh, she, her life has come to an end. I, I don't think we quite going to get this. You know, often um, critics of the resurrection will say, well, here's what happened when, uh, when the disciples went to get the body, maybe the body was moved, maybe the body was stolen, maybe it was hallucination, but you know how they were back then. They're very superstitious, and they believed in things like resurrections, and so they're kind of quick to jump to conclusions. Well, as we'll see today, it's anything but that. It's the opposite. If you're a Jew in the first century, uh, and you believe someone in the Messiah, there's a certain job description that goes with that. And the job description is kicking out the enemy. It's winning. It's, it's, it's reigning, it's ruling. If you're the Messiah and you'll go up against Rome and you lose, all it does is prove you're not the Messiah. We backed the wrong horse. And so there is no expectation. All they know is that 
the one that they've loved, that they've believed in, they've given everything for, they, they've been barking up the wrong tree. He's not the right guy. And so now to add insult to injury, they get there and someone's stolen the body. Probably because he's a poor man in a rich man's tomb. He does, can't afford the rent. You know, no one's paying for this thing. And so uh, they're upset. Like, this is, this is horrible. Someone's moved the body. And so, sure enough, she, she tells Peter and John, they're upset, so they start running. And so they started out for the tomb in verse 3, and both were running. And the other disciple, that's John, he outruns Peter. Peter must be older. And he reaches the tomb uh, first. And so he gets over, and something is not right. He looks in at the strips of linen, uh, linen lying there, but he didn't go in. So something is scary. Something's wrong. Someone's broken in the tomb, moved the stone aside, uh, and apparently taken the body, but he looks in, and of course, it's, it's kind of, you know, it's dark in there. There's no internal lights. You don't have, like, fluorescence going on. You don't flip the switch. So he's looking on, and it's kind of, the, the clothes are there. This is just flat out weird. Just imagine, for example, that imagine uh, that, that uh, I was the one being crucified, okay? And so you look in there, and you, you see what I'm wearing today, and you look in there, and you see all my clothes. Just kind of laying on the stone bench. Got the flip-flops, <laughs> Levi's. Athletic shirt, microphone come off the ear. It's all, it's all right there. And you look in, and there's no body, but the clothes are all there undisturbed. Are you with me in this? Something is weird. Because if you're going to rip off the body, you're not going to take off all my clothes and then neatly arrange them there with flip-flops to look like, I'm, oh, this is a fool up. You know, no one will notice. So something is weird, and John's a little freaking out. He's a little bit scared. He's like, ooh, what's going on here? Now, Peter's going to get there, and, you know, Peter is not one to stand on the outside, right? Peter's going to barge in. And so uh, then verse 6, and Simon Peter, who is behind him, he catches up, breathing hard in the Greek, and he arrives, and he goes into the tomb. He just barges in, and he sees the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. And the cloth was folded up neatly, it's over by itself, separate from the linen. And so now that Peter's gone in and he hasn't fallen over dead, John decides to go in. And so in verse 8, finally the other disciple who has reached the tomb first, he also goes inside. And so now he can go in, now he can see clearly. He sees the clothes, uh, it's like the body has vanished. Like the clothes are there, but the body is gone, it's weird. And all of a sudden, a light goes on for him. Now... Remember what I said, early first century, uh, it doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or a Greek, you do not believe in such a thing as a resurrection. Often critics of the resurrection will say, well, you know, they were, they were superstitious, they believed in things like resurrection, but if you actually study ancient history, first century history, what you find is that the, the predominant view was the Greek view, and the Greek view was is that when you die, your spirit lives, but your body's never coming back, um, and you wouldn't want your body to come back. That's a bad thing, because your body is what gets you into trouble. And so Greek, the, the pre prevailing cultural view, there is no such thing as a resurrection ever. The Jews were the minority opinion. Most Jews believed there was such a thing as a resurrection, but it would not happen in the middle of time. It would happen at the end of time when God turns all wrongs to right. And so at this moment, 
no one in their culture, the whole Roman world, believes in resurrection or wants a resurrection. And so John comes in. Now, Jesus has told his men several times before he's going to be killed and then he's going to rise. But they just can't get it. You know, Jesus often says weird things you can't get. And they don't know what he means. And so they just, they just have, it's totally outside of their paradigm. And so John comes in, but the moment he sees those clothes, he's standing there. Have you ever had an aha moment in your life when something just like, God just turns on the switch like, oh, I get it? Just like suddenly, he has an aha moment. It's going to change his life forever. It's the turning point in his life. He realizes in that moment, I get it. And so John actually says this in verse 9, a little editorial comment. And it says, they didn't understand from the scripture, the Old Testament, the prophecies, that Jesus had to rise from a dead. But uh, in verse 8, it's like when he went inside, it says he saw and he believed. It's like it's a turning point in his life. Okay? Now, next scene. We're going to switch scenes here. We're going to move from the tomb. Uh, Peter and John are going to go back into the city to, to meet with their buddies and say something weird's going on. We don't know what happened. Someone stole the body. We don't know what's going on. Okay. So they're going to go into town. Uh, meanwhile, at the tomb, Mary Magdalene shows up. Now remember, she had run into town. She's tired, tells them, kind of lets them go. I'm sure she's walking back now. So she shows up at the tomb, and she is just sobbing. I mean, all the pain of the week and all the dreams, everything she believed about Jesus. This is a man who had, had totally changed her life. I mean, not only was she, you know, uh, uh, set free from Jesus, from her demon possession, I mean, he totally changed her life. And so she comes back, and she is just breaking down, busting down. She is sobbing. And she goes back to the tomb now to check it out, and she looks in there, and she looks in. She can see the grave cloths. She sees uh, the grave clothes. She sees him on the stone bench, but on either side of the bench are these two men dressed in white. Okay? So they're not dressed in black, they're dressed in white. And so she sees the two men, and she starts, you know, she's so out of it, she starts having a conversation. It's like, and, and so they said, why are you so upset? Who are you looking for? And at this point in time, someone comes up behind her on the outside of the tomb, and and she, she turns around, and she's sobbing, and she, through her tears, she thinks he's like the gardener or something. And so if anyone's going to have a clue where the body is, who took the body, it's probably this guy. He oversees this whole garden. And so we pick up the story in verse 15. And so he's, uh, he says, woman, uh, why are you crying? Uh, who, who are you looking for? And she's thinking he's the gardener, and so she says, sir, if you've carried him away, just tell me where you put him, and I will get him. And all he's going to say to her is a single word. He's just going to speak her name. And the speaking of her name, her whole life, is going to change forever. And all he says to her is Mary. And in that moment, her brain clicked in, and she knew that voice. She knew that voice who had kicked the demons out of her life and set her free. She knew that voice. She knew when he spoke her, at that moment was the turning point of her life. The lights went on. Everything changed. And so she is freaking out. And she turns to him, and she cries out. She is screaming. She's just screaming out, and she's screaming in Aramaic, which makes it doubly impressive. 
And she says, Rabboni. Just screams out, Rabboni. And she throws her arms around him. And he says, wait, Mary, um, don't hold on to me. Um, you don't need to hold on to me. I'm not going anywhere. Uh, I'm not returned yet to my father. Go instead to my brothers, talking about this, his disciples, and, and tell them that I'm returning my father and your father to my God and your God. And so she lets go of him and says, okay. And so she heads back into the city. She gets to the disciples, and she says, I've seen the Lord. First one who's actually seen him. I've seen the Lord. And, uh, and we're told that in Luke's gospel that, that when the men get the report, they don't believe her uh, because, because she's a woman, right? And you know how that goes. Um, and, and we'll see that because this actually becomes very important later on. This becomes an important part of the story later on. But it, they, it, in Luke's gospel, it says that it just seemed like nonsense to them. They're like, this is ridiculous. Remember, no paradigm for resurrection. Like, I don't know what you saw. Maybe you saw some angel. Maybe some kind of vision thing. He's alive. Maybe he's alive somewhere up in heaven. You know, I don't know. But I, I know what you saw, but he's dead. It's the one thing we know. He's dead. And it just seemed like crazy talk to them. So now John's going to fast forward. That's our scene two. We're going to move to scene three. In scene three, it's now Sunday evening. And the men, his men are upstairs. They're in a, they're in a room. Doors are locked because they're afraid of the authorities fighting them. And all of a sudden, Jesus shows up. Behind the locked doors, just shows up, materializes. And uh, they're like, Where'd you come from, you know? And they're freaking out. Luke tells us they're freaking out because, remember, no paradigm of resurrection. It means he's got to be a ghost. He's got to be a spirit. Something spooky's going on here. And so they're freaking out. And Jesus says, hey, hey, you know, relax, trust. It's okay. Uh, look, look, it's me. Check out my hands. You know, same guy. And, and then he noticed they're eating fish sticks for dinner. He's like, hey, you got any? Can I, I'll have some fish. And he's like, eats the fish. And so they're starting to settle down now. And he's like, Man, it's starting to come together. They just had no framework. Whoa, 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 what's going on here? Well, it turns out that one of the 12 is not with them that night. He's a man by the name of Thomas. He's a, he's, he was a passionate Christ father. He loved Jesus. He, in fact, earlier back in chapter 11, when Jesus went back to Lazarus, even though there was a, there was a price on his head, he went back towards Jerusalem to heal his good buddy Lazarus. Uh, Thomas is like, whatever, he's walking into a death trap, but let's just go with, die with him. And so Thomas is a serious Christ follower, um, but, but he's bitter because he, he has bet on Jesus and he's wrong. I mean, Jesus was dead. He, he thought he was the Messiah. He's dead. He's wrong. We're all wrong. And so he's angry. He's bitter. He's in a sad place. He thought he knew what God was doing. He thought he knew God loved him. And, and, and it's like his life has come down. He's bitter. We don't know why he's not there that Sunday, first Sunday night. Maybe, maybe he's out running errands or a show on TV. We don't know what the story is, but he's not there. And so when he comes back, they tell him, we have saw the Lord. He's like, whatever. Like, I'm not going to be fooled again. And so he says, let's pick it up. In verse uh, 24, so Thomas called Didymus, he's one of the 12. He's with the disciples. Uh, he was not with the disciples when Jesus came. And so the other disciples tell him, we've seen the Lord. And he's like, yeah, whatever. And he'll look at you and tell him, I want you to catch his bitterness here. He's the ultimate skeptic. He says, but he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and I put my finger where the nails were. Are you with me in here? This guy's hardcore. He's like, man, I, 
hey, let, you show me the hands, I'm going to stick my finger in the holes. So you show me the hands in the holes. I, I'm not buying in. I've been fooled once. I'm not being fooled again. This guy's bitter. H- have you ever kind of trusted God and then he didn't seem to come through for you? And you just kind of get bitter? This is, kind of where, this is, where, this is where Thomas is. He says, i got to put my hand in his side. I'm not going to believe it. So we fast forward. It's a week later. Now it's a week after the resurrection. It's Sunday night again. Uh, same scene, disciples in the room, doors locked, but this time Thomas is with them. And since 26, a week later, disciples were in the house again, Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked, there it is again, it's locked, Jesus comes and he stands amongst them. And he says, peace be with you. This is traditional greeting, shalom, Hebrew greeting, shalom. And, uh, and then he says, hey, Thomas, we need to talk. <laughs> oh. You see the other disciples just kind of slowly backing away. Oh, man, I'm sure it's going to be so good for Thomas. I think he's going to be taken out right here. You know, it's just like he's history. And he's just so toast. Now, here's the thing we learn about Jesus. Jesus loves an honest skeptic. Jesus, he's not into people that are using skepticism to hide, hide behind. They don't really want to follow Jesus. They just want to, like, come up with reasons not to follow Jesus. Okay, they didn't have time for that. But Jesus is big into honest skeptics. If you're an honest skeptic, Jesus says, I'm good with that. I can deal with that. And uh, so he says to Thomas, he says, Thomas, why don't you come here and put your, uh, he holds out his hand. Can I picture this? Holding out his hand, got the holes there. I mean, these are big scars, probably through his wrist. In Greek, uh, hand and wrist are the same term. So he's, he's got these big, huge, healed scars. I mean, from railroad spikes being driven through your wrist. I mean, we're not talking like a little, you know, nine-penny nail or something, you know. He's got these these huge spike holes in his hand. He holds them out for him. Can you imagine Thomas across the room like, oh, his heart's beating. And he says, uh, put your finger here and then uh, see my hands. Reach out your hand. Come and put it in my side. I got a big scar here. Pull it on. Here you go. And stop doubting and believe. And, and this becomes the turning point in Thomas's life. Turning point for Mary, she hears her voice. Turning point for John, walking into the tomb, sees the, the grave clothes. Turning point for Thomas, Jesus says, check it out. And in that moment, everything Jesus had said about himself suddenly gets clear. Remember back, John chapter 5, Jesus makes himself equal to God. Remember John chapter 8, before Abraham was born, I am. John chapter 10, I and the Father are one. John chapter 14, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. This is the claim of the gospel of of John, that God has come. And in that moment, the light goes on for Thomas, and he moves from being the greatest skeptic to the greatest worshiper. And look what he says. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my what? My God. All of a sudden, this is the high point in the Gospel of John. This is the point John's been leading us through for 20 chapters to get to this point. Starts off the claim that God came to planet Earth. He's been building his evidence all the way through. This is the high point in the Gospel of John where Thomas, I believe, falls on his knees and he gets and he says, I get who you are. I finally get it. My Lord and my God. 
And so Jesus says to him, hey, because you've seen me, you believe, not a bad thing, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. And there's a special blessing for those who have never. Jesus knows that throughout history that most people come to believe in him will never have the privilege Thomas had. But he said, that's okay, blessed are those who, who've not, they've not seen me, but they based on the historical evidence, based on your story, the stories of the New Testament that have believed. And so then John wraps up the chapter. He says, uh, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples. <laughs> We've seen these all through the Gospel of John, these miracles that Jesus did, showing who he was. We'll talk about them more later. He said, but he did a lot more than these, which are not recorded in the book. In the book, he gives us seven. He, there's, he says, there's a ton more. But these I've chosen. These are written <clears throat> so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. Remember what it means, Messiah. That he's the Christ, the Messiah, and he's the Son of God. He's divine. He's God in the flesh. And that by believing, you may have what? Life. That you may have life. This whole new life, God comes into you, born again, whole new life, new nature, new future. Everything changes the moment you realize who Jesus is, and we give him our life. And so that's the passage. Now, so this is John's account, his story of that first Sunday as seen especially through the eyes of these three key characters, Mary, himself, John, and Thomas. Now, uh, in the time that we have to get, uh, today, what I want to do is a uh, couple things. I, there, uh, last week we talked about the death of Jesus and why is it so important. And we looked at John 19 and we said through John's eyes, like why is it so important? I want to do a similar thing this week and ask the question, why is the death of, uh, or the resurrection of Jesus so important, especially through John's eyes and the story that he tells? So there in your note sheet, you have a section called the resurrection of Jesus. Why is it so important? What, why do we care? What, is, what difference does it make in our life, and not only in our life, but in the life of all of human history and the cosmos? And just kind of two points I want to make. Number one, uh, the resurrection, first of all, is the ultimate sign. It's a sign of what? It's the ultimate sign that Jesus is who he claims to be. And this is what John means in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. We just read it. Uh, John says, hey, there's, there's, all, there's a lot more signs that Jesus did, miraculous signs. These I've told you to kind of prove a point, to give you the evidence you need to come to the conviction that Jesus is who he claimed to be. He's Messiah, he's the Son of God. And if you stop and think about this, this is what John has been doing all through this gospel. Like if you think back to June when we started this series, we're in chapter one. You remember how, it's, how John starts his gospel? He starts it like this. He, he gives us this opening statement in chapter one where he kind of lays out the case that he's going to be making, much like an attorney would in a court case. Okay, here's, here's what I'm going to prove. Here's what I'm going to show. And you remember if we, we kind of summarize it like this, what John was going to prove was that there's a time and a place when the God who created all time and all space entered into creation, became a part of the human race in order to reveal himself, who he is, and to rescue us and give us life. That's the case. Remember how John put it? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And all things were created by him, and the word became flesh, and he dwelt among being a human being. He dwelt among us. We've seen his glory. That's his opening line, that there's a time and a place when the God who's created the universe has come in. That's an amazing claim. It's a huge claim. And, and what he's been about in the Gospel of John has been backing up that claim, and one of his main lines of evidence has been these miraculous signs of Jesus. 
And he gives us these seven, seven miracles that point the way to who Jesus is. And so you remember, remember in chapter 2, uh, Jesus shows up at a wedding. They run out of wine. He makes 150 gallons so the party can go on. Remember that? Give me an insight. Who, who is this guy? Uh, chapter 4, you've got a, a rich nobleman who comes to Jesus. His son's on his deathbed 16 miles away. Jesus speaks the word and he's healed. Chapter 5, there is a lame man who's been lame for 38 years. Jesus heals him instantly. Uh, chapter 6, we actually have two, uh, two sides. First, there's the, the feeding of the 5,000 or 10,000 with women and children and so on. Uh, with one kid's happy meal. Remember that? And, and then there's the next line, walking on water and the, the calming of the storm. And then in chapter 9, we have the healing of the man who was born blind. And in chapter 11, we had the, the best one yet, the, the raising from the dead of his good friend, a man named Lazarus, who is dead and in the grave and decaying for four days. And so in the Gospel of John, John's been laying out these seven signs. And what he says in chapter 20 is, hey, there's a lot more signs. There was a ton more. I just cho chose these seven to lay out some historical evidence. Because when I'm asking you to believe in Jesus, I'm not asking you to take some kind of religious leap in the dark. I'm, I'm asking you to make a credible decision to follow him based on the evidence. And so we come now to chapter 20, and, and I want you to see the resurrection is what? It's the ultimate sign that shows who Jesus is. That's why he tells the story of the resurrection and he immediately says, these signs I've written. You see? It's the ultimate sign. The sign that shows that Jesus is who he claimed to be. That he's God in the flesh. He's come to rescue us, give us a whole new life, die for us, live for us, and so on. Now, so why is the resurrection so important? Because it's the ultimate sign. I want you to catch this. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, the whole story of Jesus is a hoax and a myth, and only a fool would follow him. See, that's why all his men stopped following him. They got the logic of that, you see? And everything changed when he came back. You see, if Jesus doesn't come back from the dead, then, then he's just a mistaken Jewish prophet. And we might as well go home and do something else with, with Easter. Okay? Um, but if he did rise from the dead, it proves that everything he taught and everything he claimed is true and is life-changing for us. Are you with me in this? You see? Uh, a couple months ago, I read a book by a man named Timothy Keller. He's a uh, He's a pastor of a, a large church in New York City at Manhattan Island, you know, the home of skeptics. And uh, the book's called The Reason for God. It's sort of a response to some of the modern uh, new atheism. And uh, in that book, he makes the following quote, and I put it there on your note sheet. He says, sometimes people approach me and say, I really struggle with this aspect of Christian teaching. I, I like this part of Christian belief, but I don't think I can accept that part. And I usually respond, hey, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all he said. And here's my favorite part. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about anything he said? 
The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. He's absolutely right. If he didn't rise from the dead, the whole thing's a hoax. If he did rise from the dead, it changes everything. Now, there's always been those who have claimed from the very beginning that he didn't rise from the dead. That that what happened, this was sort of a religious myth or legend, it developed over a long period of time. Maybe they went to the wrong tomb. Uh, Maybe it was a group hallucination. Uh, Maybe uh, that Jesus, he actually didn't die on the cross, but he just passed out. They thought he was dead. And so they they put him in the tomb, in the cool of the tomb with the spices. He comes alive, unwraps himself, pushes aside the hundreds of pounds of stone, uh, scares away the, the guards, and he convinces his men he's back from the dead. Maybe that's what happened. And so there's always been these theories. And I don't know that here's the thing that I found. Uh, If you've ever checked them out, what you find is that this alternate explanation to the resurrection, they they all have like an Achilles heel. Like they don't really make sense. Like we've we've talked about some of this. Like one of the theories, this was back in those days, they were very gullible. They all believed in a resurrection. And so when he came, it was wishful thinking. I mean, they wanted him to rise. Someone's got a vision. They went to the wrong tomb. You put it together. That over a long period of time, this came to be, you know, believed. And that's like a typical explanation. But the fact is we've seen today, this is not wishful thinking. No one in the first century believed in a resurrection. Historical evidence shows nobody believed in a resurrection. And if your Messiah is killed, it's the end of the movement. It just means you were wrong. Everyone knows that. And on top of that, that this wasn't a legend that developed like the legends of Mary Magdalene we just talked about in the Da Vinci Code over hundreds of years. I mean, these are the, the teaching of the resurrection is immediate and it's profound. In fact, even, uh, even we have written documents in the New Testament that talk about the resurrection of Jesus within 15 or 20 years of the event, and those reflect an oral tradition much earlier. Scholars all agree to this. This is not something scholars debate. This is, all scholars agree on this. In fact, when the Apostle Paul is writing to the, his letter to the church of Corinth, which is about 20 years after the resurrection, he talks about the resurrection And he says, hey, listen, there was over 500 eyewitnesses of Jesus after his resurrection, and most of them are still alive. If you don't believe it, go ask them. See, legends take hundreds of, if you ever study legends and mythology, it takes hundreds of years for it to develop over time. And when it does, there aren't the kind of details that we see in the Gospels. And it's more than that. You see, if you don't believe in the resurrection, then, then you need to, to come up with an explanation of what happened that explains the facts that you, you have to come up with a way because the reality is that the movement of Jesus is unlike anything in the history of the world. How does, how does a whole empire come to believe that a crucified criminal is God when you don't even believe as a culture in resurrection in such a rapid period of time that within 300 years has taken over the Roman Empire and even that Roman emperor becomes a believer. Like, how does that happen? How do you explain that? You have to explain that. If you don't believe in the resurrection, fine, but you have to come up with a credible alternate explanation. You have to explain why these men 
who were hiding in the, the room behind locked doors because they're so afraid of the authorities, how do they suddenly change and become some of the most powerful witnesses in the history of the world? Everyone but one going to their death as martyrs for what? A lie? See, you have to explain. Here's like one of the biggest miracles of all. You know, in Jewish history, in the Jewish faith, for 1,500 years, they had celebrated, gone to church on Saturday, the Sabbath, right? And all of a sudden, after the resurrection, the early church, which is all Jewish, they suddenly start worshiping on Sunday. Now, I don't know how much you know about church people. Not always the most flexible. That's the biggest miracle of all. And it's just even the littlest details. Like earlier I talked about how the women, they come to the disciples, and they tell them we see Jesus, and they're like, whatever. Did you know that in the first century, in a Jewish court, women were not allowed to testify because they were not considered to be credible witnesses? And yet, in the four Gospels, the four Gospels all agree that the first people to see Jesus alive were all women. Yeah. Yeah. So I got to talk to him about that. Like, what's up with that? You know? It's like you could have gone to Peter. You could have gone to John. Right? You could have ta- talked to your mother, even. You could have talked to your brothers. You should go to Mary. You know? Like, why would anyone make up a story to convince you that a guy rose from the dead and then tell you that the first witnesses were not even witnesses would be allowed in a court of law? Why would you do that except it's the way it happened? You see? And you could go on and on. Now, so the question then for us is what do we do with this? Here's the point John's making. The reason the resurrection is important because it's the ultimate sign that what Jesus said and who he claimed to be is, is true, it's right. It's the ultimate sign. Now, if you're here today and you've never really thought about this, and it's just probably it's likely for some of us, you think of Easter, yeah, I know there's a grave, I know there's a cross in there somewhere, the Easter bunny, you got eggs. We got, you know, somewhere this whole thing all shakes out and Christians believe he rose and I get it and what. You've never really thought about it, what it means and why it's important. Here's my challenge to you. I challenge you, man, this is a life or death issue. You need to decide whether Jesus rose from the dead because if he does, it changes everything. You need to figure this out. And I'll tell you what, what's happened in history, some of the greatest skeptics of the resurrection in the process of examining the evidence and trying their hardest, some of the brilliant, most brilliant minds ever, trying their hardest to come up with an alternate explanation that explained the facts. You know what happens? They become Christ followers. In fact, uh, like just one story that happened uh, in our life recently is a guy named Lee Strobel. He was a, a respected uh, writer for the Chicago Tribune, and they're legal, covered legal affairs. So he's a, he's a hardcore uh, uh, investigative reporter. And his wife comes to Jesus, and he's upset about this, and so he needs to... He needs to uh, to do some research on this to prove why this is the wrong thing. So he begins to research with some of the top leading authorities in our nation the life and death of Jesus. And in the process, he becomes a Christ follower. 
Why? Because the evidence is so compelling that by the time you're done with it, it takes more faith to believe he didn't rise from the dead than it does to believe he did rise from the dead. And so if you're here today and you're saying, well, I've just never thought about this. You know, I need to think of things through. I want to recommend Lee's book to you. In fact, I put it there on your note sheet under point number one. It's called The Case for Christ by Lee Stroll. Very entertaining, easy to read, uh, great authorities, uh, well-researched, documented, but it's a great read. And, and, and check, and, uh, I encourage you to check it out. Now, number two, the second thing John wants us to convince us of, or the reason that uh, the resurrection is important, is that the resurrection changes everything. The resurrection changes everything, and it's not just for our own personal life. Like, obviously, it changes our, our personal lives if we believe in it, but it's, it doesn't just change. It changes the history of the world. It changes the history of the cosmos, the story of, a, of the whole cosmos. Now, we see that in this story. We, we see how the resurrection, you know, uh, Mary, John, uh, Thomas. I mean, Mary is sobbing. Uh, John's hiding away. Thomas is bitter. And the moment the truth of the resurrection hits them, it changes everything. I mean, Mary just needs to hear the word, her name, and her life. The, the, the sorrow is gone. It's a new day. Um, John, he steps into the tomb, a ha moment. His life changes. He goes on to be one of the greatest witnesses of Jesus in the history of the church. Uh, Thomas, the moment he sees those hands, he moves from being skeptic to worshiper. And by the way, if you're here today and you're a skeptic, I hope you're encouraged by that. Jesus loves honest skeptics. People who say, I, I can't buy into this thing. I need evidence. Like Jesus doesn't say, oh no, take it on faith. He says, look, check it out. You see, check it out. Take a look. Look at the evidence. Now, but the point is, the moment that they realize that Jesus is alive, it changes everything. And it's true for us here, isn't it? For many of us here, we're Christ followers. We know what it was to live without Christ. And we know what it is to live with Christ. And there was a time we didn't know Jesus. We didn't believe in Jesus. We didn't buy the stuff. And our life was one way. And then we came to Jesus and the light went on. And we came to him and our life changed. And it's like night and day. The resurrection changes everything. But catch this, it's not just personal. It changes everything, not just for us as individuals. It changes the history of the human race. It changes the history and the future of the cosmos. And this is what the New Testament teaches. It teaches that the resurrection wasn't just an amazing miracle that happened. It's the first step in the recreation of the entire cosmos. See, we, we live, the Bible says, in a fallen world. This world, as beautiful as it is, what the Bible says is this world, it's a fallen world, it's a dying world, it's a decaying world. It's full of disease and crime and hatred and brokenness and dysfunction and evil. And it's in every realm of our society and culture and nature. We live in a dying world. And what the, the New Testament says is the, the death and the, resur the resurrection of Jesus was the first step in reclaiming the universe. And what you see is this, is you see it in his body. You see, the new body that Jesus has, is, it's a prototype of the bodies you and I will have if we follow Jesus. And so Jesus shows up. Remember how the body works? It's kind of like his old body. I mean, it's got the scars, right? 
you can see the side, the hand, and so on. And yet it's also strangely new. In fact, in many of the gospel, the resurrection accounts, his followers don't even recognize him. It's like it's the same, and yet it's new. And he's got these new capabilities. Like it's sort of like Star Trek. That he's able to like beam himself in. Did you catch that? They're behind locked doors, and he just shows up. I think it's the coolest thing. I can't wait for this. You just think yourself where you want to go. It's just awesome. You know, it's just like Starbucks. Yes, I'd like a tall mocha, 195 easy whip, please. I'm there. Uh, Guys, think of how handy this would be in the middle of an argument with your wife. You're just like, beach. Like, wow, we'll get back to that later. That's good. And are you with me? So so this, this body, it's... I want you to catch, it's real, it's physical, it's tangible. You can touch it. You can feel it. He, you, you can eat. He eats. It's, it's real. It's, and what, what this is telling us is what the future of the universe is. The future of the universe is not sitting on clouds playing harps. The, the future is, yeah, amen. It's like, whoa, yeah. Yeah, it's like, I think I'd slip my wrists and die. It's like, I'm not in for that. When the Bible talks about the future, it talks about a new heavens and a new earth. It talks, uh, it's, a, it's physical, it's real, it's more physical and tangible and beautiful and amazing than this world ever will be. And you and I, as followers of Jesus, we will be part of it. And you see, the resurrection of Jesus, according to the New Testament, is the first stage of a new movement of God to reclaim the universe, restore the universe, turn all wrongs to right, clean out the evil, make it like it's supposed to be, and that's what the resurrection's about. You see, the resurrection of Jesus is the first step to take back the cosmos, and that's New Testament teaching. Amen. Amen. And so here's what it is. When a man or woman comes to Jesus, it's not just about having your sins forgiven and then kind of waiting for him to come back. No, it's about the resurrection life of Jesus coming into you, changing you for the inside out so you can partner with him to help change the world. Because the future is coming. It's real. It's tangible. What we do here matters. And so as he was, we are to be. And we are to be the hands and feet of Jesus in a broken and hurting world. See, the resurrection is our commissioning. It's our mission to help him change the world. You see? Uh, there in your note sheet, I like how Tim Keller puts it in his book again. He says, each year at Easter, I get to preach on the resurrection. In my sermon, I always say to my skeptical secular friends, even if they can't believe in the resurrection, they should want it to be true. Most of them care deeply about justice for the poor, alleviating hunger and disease, and caring for the environment. Yet many of them believe that the material world was caused by accident, and that the world and everything in it will eventually simply burn up in the death of the sun. They find it discouraging so few people care about justice without realizing the worldview undermines any motivation to make the world a better place. Why sacrifice for the needs of others if in the end nothing we do will make any difference? 
If the resurrection of Jesus happened, however, that means there's infinite hope and reason to put ourselves out for the needs of the world. Are you with me? It means the world is real, the future is real, and what we do here matters. And so when we become a follower of Jesus, we receive his resurrection life. From that moment on, we are on mission to partner with him to change the world as he did. Are you with me? Okay. So here's the question. The question for us then is, what do we do with this? Do we believe him or not? The only question is, what do we do with his ultimate sign? Do we give our life to Jesus? Do we let him change us? Do we let him forgive us? Do we let him restore us? Do we let him set him free with our resurrection life to help change the world? Or do we reject the evidence? Do we ignore the evidence? Do we go back to the Easter bunny and the eggs and we go on as if God has never invaded planet Earth? You see? And that's the question of Easter. Let's pray. While our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, um, I want to talk to those of you who've never made a decision to follow Jesus. And, and maybe there's a reason. Maybe you didn't have the evidence. Maybe you didn't believe. Maybe you did believe. You just weren't ready to surrender uh, to him, to his leadership in your life. But for whatever reason, today as you sit here, God is all over you. And you sense that your chest is beating hard. You, you want him. You want to be a part of what he's about. You want to believe. You want to follow. You want him to change you. You want him to forgive you. You want the new life. You want this resurrection life. You want to be part of the solution, not the problem. And you're here today, and you just want to be told how. You want me to tell you how to do that. And that's what we're going to do right now. If that's your heart, and you've come to the place you believe in Jesus, and you want to surrender and let him lead your life and forgive your sins and give you a whole new life, I'm going to pray a very simple prayer right now. But together, we're going to ask Christ to come into your life. And I just, if this is where you're at, I just want you to pray with me under your breath in your mind, uh, in your heart, God will hear. Dear Jesus, I ask you to come into my life. I, I pray you forgive me for everything wrong I've done against you and all my rebellion. I ask you to come into my life and change me from the inside out. I ask you to fill me with your resurrection life and your spirit. You teach me how to follow you might please you in every area of my life. You could use me to help extend your movement and that one day I'd be with you forever in that new body like yours for all eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. If that's you and you just prayed that prayer, I want to welcome you to the kingdom. And I want to ask you to do me a favor. In a couple of minutes we'll be taking the morning's offering and collecting our connect cards in your program. Would you do me a favor and just write on there that I prayed the prayer, and I'll know what you mean, and that has set in motion several things. We'll begin praying for you this week. I'll send you a letter of some first steps in your new relationship with Jesus. I'll send you a Bible. We'll also contact you and talk about, if you're serious about following Jesus, the very first step is to be baptized. It's a sign of our death and our resurrection with him. It's a sign of our washing away of our old life. And so we'll talk to you about baptism, what's that about? Oh, our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. I want to talk to those of you who are here today that maybe at one point in your life you gave your life to Jesus, but somewhere along the way you've taken it back. You've not been living for him. You've not been letting his resurrection life live. You've been doing your own thing and you're sick of it. You're sick of the death of your life. You're sick of the life you're leading. You, you're hungry for him again. Something's been woken today and you want to come back. And I just want to encourage you. 
in the quietness of this, this moment, you would just ask him to lead you again. Tell him you're sorry. Ask him to forgive you. Ask him to lead you, and he will. And that resurrection life will begin pouring back in you again. Lord, in this moment as a church, we come and we affirm the resurrection. We believe in the resurrection of Jesus. It's on good historical evidence. We believe because of the evidence. We believe because of the way you've changed your life. Internal and external witness coming together. And Lord, we pray that you'd empower us to live it out as a church, that we might change the world in which you put us here. That we might bring many to know you, many lives to be changed. That we might be your hands and feet in this community. That's our prayer on this Easter. In Jesus' name, amen.